Welcome to Final Examination, a podcast about the end of the world. I'm Paul Musgrave, a professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. During the fall 2020 semester, four teams of students have researched, reported, and produced stories about how people have faced the end of the world right here in Massachusetts. In the 1800s, the owners of the textile factories in Lowell, Massachusetts grew rich from the labor of thousands of so-called mill girls. Olivia Amato Hansen and Varshida Jakaraju discuss how those workers organized to bring that world to an end and the mixed results of their victories. In Lowell, Massachusetts, in 1860, you couldn't escape the smoke rising up from factory chimneys and steam fogging up glass windows. Dozens of young girls in muted colors would run into brick buildings at the ring of the bell and would leave with tiny little holes pricked into their fingers. They spent their days at large looms sewing finely woven cotton that would end up clothing people from Chicago to London. They sang while they worked. Now we give a welcome greeting to these viands cooked so well. Horrors, oh, not half done eating. Rattle, rattle goes the bell. They created 115 million yards of fabric that would travel the 30 miles by train to Boston to then be sent all around the world. Saul behind the hills descended. Upwards throws his weary light. Ding dong ding, our toil is ended. Joyous bell, good night, good night. But then, it just stopped. Lowell today has never fully recovered from the loss of this system. Marred by years of economic depression, Lowell is a shadow of its former self. The once proud mill buildings now look empty next to the New England landscape, and the formerly bustling sidewalks are lined with graffiti. How could a community, once an ambitious vision for the future, fall so rapidly and never be able to recover again. I am Rashida Jakaraju. And I am Olivia Amato Hansen. In this episode, we will answer, what is it like for a world to end because the economy changes? How does this affect the labor movements of today? Can we help oppressed workers? Or is the only solution to let the market run its course? The Lowell Mail System is the perfect case study for these questions. We're going to explore what contributed to the end of the Lowell Mill system, and if the end of that system helped achieve greater economic and political rights, ironically, not for themselves, but for the workers that came after them. Lowell was founded to be a mill town set up by a group of textile manufacturers called the Boston Associates. One of their most prominent members was Francis Cabot Lowell, which is where the town gets its name. This town was built to be profitable, which makes its current situation even more ironic. So Lowell is located in the Merrimack Valley region of Massachusetts. It's crisscrossed by Route 3 and 495, and is only about a 45-minute drive away from downtown Boston. So you would expect it to be a commuter town, but it really isn't. We're coming into downtown Lowell now, but for a city of over 100,000 people, it's not really much of a downtown. There's the University of Massachusetts Lowell here, 
which has a fairly large arena called the Songus Arena. And that's how most people in Eastern Mass identify this city, honestly. What I keep noticing is how run down all this looks. We're in the downtown area now, but it looks like a lot of low-income housing and some liquor stores. Also, all of these buildings are that traditional red brick that is so tightly woven into that mill culture. Oh, take a left there. Let's head to the mills. So now we're at the spot in the city which has all of the mill museums and quilting museums, and I think it actually looks nicer than the downtown area. All of the old buildings that were used as boarding houses for the mill girls have been converted into museums and other learning spaces. So there's always a lot of field trips here during non-pandemic times. It's sad because you know this area only looks nicer because it's a touristy area. And even just two blocks away from here, the vibe is completely different. Seeing how this entire area is made up of those red brick old mill buildings is surreal. It becomes very apparent that this whole city was dependent on the mills. They were omnipresent and still very much are. This podcast is supported by Alita's Angels, a 501c3 nonprofit that provides clothing to asylum-seeking children and their families. To learn more about Alita's Angels and support their mission, please visit alitasangels.com. That's A-L-I-T-A-S angels.com. According to Lowell, a city of spindles, a book written in 1900, these mills were extremely profitable. Around three yards of cotton sold for 70 cents, and at one point, Lowell was creating 115 million yards a year. In today's dollar, that's over $74 billion in revenue. Yes, billion with a B. To put that in perspective, that's how much money that Target makes in a year. And remember, this is just one city. At its peak, the mill system employed 122,000 workers and truly became the backbone of the region. So when it fell, it was even more devastating. Fathers passed their mills on down to their sons, accumulating even more wealth and status for their families along the way. At its peak, the elite were defined as fabric manufacturing aristocrats. Along with the mills themselves, these elites had an unimaginable amount of personal wealth. For example, one founding mill owner named Nathan Appleton bought the house across the street from his mansion in Boston just to tear it down so that their view of the River Charles may not be intercepted. All of this ridiculous wealth could not have been attained without one very important piece of the puzzle, the mill girls. I called Lowell historian Alison Horrocks to tell us more about these mill girls and how they shape Lowell. My name is Allison Horrocks, and I'm a park ranger at Lowell National Historical Park in Lowell, Massachusetts. My background is that I'm a historian and a public historian, and I focus on histories of women, work, and education, and public service. Can you tell us more about how the city's beginnings influence the development of industry? They develop a factory city that really is unparalleled for several years and then becomes a model for other places in the United States. So it's unique for its area in the early years and then sets this template for other places to develop industry, um, specifically with textiles, but then in other areas as well. 
The mill factory owners built their wealth by creating a revolutionary system of production known as the Lowell System. For the first time in the United States, textiles were being made under one roof, whereas before, workers would just work from home. Mass production became the norm, setting a very profitable foundation for the future manufacturing industry. Of course, the mill girls were key to that profit. New England's labor supply was scarce, competing with the ever-alluring promise of independence that came with farming one's own land. Combined with the problem of an already small population, mill owners turned to an untapped population to fill their factories. Young women. Business-wise, it made a lot of sense. Many women already had experience with weaving and spinning textiles. Mill owners were also able to pay them less than men and found them easier to control. The revolutionary dormitories where they all lived also plays a part in all of this, allowing the owners to exert more control over their workers while providing them with housing and a sense of freedom outside of the traditional home. Yeah, so unfortunately, something that is true today was also true 200 years ago, which is that women were paid less, sometimes even for the same work that men or others were doing. And so the recruitment of women was part of a very specific money-saving strategy. Women also tended to do a lot of the work in the domain of textiles. So women were specifically recruited from local farms in the early years to come and to work in the factory city. And they were the ones that would tend to the looms and the other machinery. And this is something that occurred for several decades in a very similar pattern. I think that Lowell is always kind of two sides of a coin. So there are people who find Lowell incredibly tragic because it's an extremely difficult workplace. There's a hard adjustment of leaving home, but there's also a lot of women who find themselves really empowered. They're away from families for the first time. They're able to subscribe to lending libraries. They have money that they can spend. And what all these people have in common, no matter where they're from, is women were expected to work pretty hard unless they were of an upper class. The difference is at Lowell is you get paid for it and you get to keep your money. But this work was extremely stifling and extremely dangerous. Every day was timed out perfectly by the bells that rang out throughout the mill complex. The girls would be woken up by a bell around 4.30 in the morning. By the 5.30 bell, they needed to be downstairs having breakfast, and once again by 6.50, a bell would ring so they would know they had to leave so they could be at their post by the bell at 7. They would then work until noon when the dinner bell would ring and they had a half hour to eat a small pack lunch they brought with them. At 7 p.m., the bell would once again ring, signifying that they could go back to their boarding houses eat supper, go to bed, and do it all over again. They did this six days a week, except on Saturdays, where they got out of work at 6 p.m. instead. How wonderful. Oh, and all of this happened while the mill owners occasionally watched, but mostly went into Boston or took nice strolls through their gardens. These girls usually worked for 13 hours a day. And when you're that tired and the owners and foremen are pushing you to work harder and harder, Accidents are bound to happen. Farshida, do you know what a bobbin is? Um, a British nanny? It was this big spindle of thread, 
probably about as big as your hand, that threaded the machines as they were working, but eventually these babas would run out of thread and have to be rewound. But instead of turning the machines off so someone could safely exchange it for a new one, the machine was just left running and spinning, and a young girl who had hands small enough to reach into the gaps would have to navigate her hands between all of the gears and heavy machinery that was literally moving to change out these bobbins. Girls routinely had their fingers and hands cut off. Oh my gosh, that's terrifying. I know, and that's not even the worst thing. How is that not the worst thing? A mill girl named Margaret Kriegenhafer was carrying rags on the third floor of the mill, above where all of the machines were working. The mill was so poorly managed that a trapdoor was left loose, and she fell onto the moving machines below. The newspaper article on this says that the ribs were torn on the right side from the backbone, the body was almost cut in two in the back just before the shoulders, and there were numerous other bruises and lacerations. That is the most awful thing I have ever heard. And the worst part is, I don't think the people of the time would have agreed with your feelings on it. It got only such a short article in the newspaper. These kinds of horrible deaths and accidents were fairly commonplace. People became desensitized to the workplace horror happening all around them. But the families of these girls realized the risk involved for the ever-dwindling pay, so Americans stopped sending their children to Lowell to work. But then, in 1845, the Irish potato famine drove thousands of young women out of Ireland in search of work to help support their families back home. These girls would often find their way to Lowell, and not realizing the dangers, they were lured in by the promises of a place to stay and good wages with enough money to pay for their room and board and send some back to their families. When they made it across the Atlantic, they joined the ranks of the New England women who had been working at these mills for much longer, and so had the most lucrative and least dangerous jobs. While the Yankees were spinning wool in rooms with at least some light, the immigrant women were the ones changing out bobbins. Even in the early days, cracks were beginning to surface between New England-born and foreign-born workers. The mill system created tensions along ethnic divides that have not really left Lowell since. The opportunity for economic freedom in Lowell encouraged many to take the leap and move, but when they did, they were met with severe xenophobia. Mill owners purposely controlled how these groups interacted and often pitted the two against each other by housing them in separate boarding houses or telling the Yankees that they were getting paid less because the immigrants were being too demanding. But of course, we know how the story ends, and it's kind of disheartening to see the current disparities in Lowell's population today. So where people have lived historically was very much based on how they came into the city for work. There are entire communities that were created around groups that were recruited, such as French Canadians or Greek families. That continues all the way into the present where people are recruited for specific skills and they end up being funneled into certain neighborhoods or due to redlining or segregation are forced to live in certain neighborhoods. And I think all of those are legacies in different ways of that industrial past. Looking at a map of Lowell today, it's obvious that there are racial divisions in the city. 
systematic racism, and general structural inadequacies have prevented Black, Indigenous, people of color communities from obtaining the resources and opportunities they need. This includes everything from quality education to low-income housing to culturally competent healthcare. The decline of the Lowell Mill system cannot be discussed without mentioning how the fall of that system disproportionately harmed the immigrant and working classes, leading to cycles of poverty and oppression that continue to this day. This podcast is supported by data scientist Lindsay Pettengill, who wants everyone to know they should hang in there, find people that believe in them, and speak truth to power. The North was creating so many textiles that prices began to fall dramatically that, coupled with economic mismanagement and panics that occurred in the first half of the 1800s, meant that mill owners were keen to increase their profits. The mills began cutting wages and were now forcing the women to work even longer hours, up to 80 hours a week. Mary Paul, a mill girl, wrote in a letter to her father, It is very hard indeed, and sometimes I think I shall not be able to endure it. I never worked so hard in my life, but perhaps I shall get used to it. I presume you have heard before this, that the wages are to be reduced on the 20th of this month. It is true, and there seems to be a good deal of excitement on the subject, but I cannot tell what will be the consequence. The companies pretend they are losing immense sums every day, and therefore are obliged to lessen the wages. But this seems perfectly absurd to me, for they are constantly making repairs, and it seems to me that this would not be there were really any dangers of their being obliged to stop the mills. In response to these deplorable conditions in pay, for the first time in American history, workers unionized. When you go to work, well, you work like the devil. At the end of the week, you're not on the level. Payday comes, you ain't got a penny. Cause when you pay your bills, you got so many. I'm gonna starve and everybody will. Cause you can't make a living in a cotton mill. So when did the woman decide enough was enough? Part of what happens is women resist a change in pay structure. So initially the corporations had been taking their pay and they had been covering housing essentially. And then instead of offering a pay cut, what they did was charge women for the housing. So just another way to accomplish the same thing. And I think part of what the factory owners and the agents and the managers underestimated was the culture of the boarding houses. People who have evenings to themselves to talk also have time to organize. And so I think their big miscalculation was how women would spend that time. And women use some of that time to organize and think of themselves as a collective and to walk out. So they have power as a block. And I think it's initially that change that pushes them to lead those first walkouts in the 1830s. Harriet Hanson Robinson, a New England mill girl who began working as a mill girl at the age of 11 and later became an author and women's rights activist, participated in some of the first of these strikes. She wrote, When it was announced that the wages were to be cut down, great indignation was felt, and it was decided to strike or turn out en masse. This was done. The mills were shut down, 
One of the girls stood on a pump and gave vent to the feelings of her companions in a neat speech, declaring that it was their duty to resist all attempts at cutting down the wages. This was the first time a woman had spoken in public in Lowell, and the event caused surprise and consternation among her audience. Eventually, the strikes led to the government to pass reforms aimed at protecting workers. But by now, the damage is already done. Mill owners chose greed over the health and well-being of their workers and began to neglect making necessary updates to the mills. This allowed fabric manufacturing in the South to steadily increase and eventually become both cheaper and better quality than what Lowell could produce. The mill system was clearly important to Lowell, Massachusetts. But what world did these girls end when they striked? What did the closure of the mills really mean for Lowell and for the United States? The mill girls spent years working insane hours and took the risk of pushing back against the men in charge, all for the whole mill ecosystem to collapse. What, if any, mark did they leave on the world? Well, they were the first workers in the history of the United States who unionized. I'd say that's pretty big. Sure, but keep in mind, that caused all the mills to shut down. They went from low pay to no pay. Did they even fix anything? The mill girls are actually recognized by the AFL-CIO, the Confederation of U.S. Labor Unions, as the birth of the modern labor movement in the U.S. And remember, these were like 10-year-olds working 12-hour shifts in factories. Their organizing made child labor laws a legislative priority. In 1874, the Massachusetts legislature passed a law prohibiting working over 10 hours a day. That was definitely inspired by Lowell. But you're right, that its progress wasn't perfect. Right, like Lowell's economy basically plummeted beyond recognition. This was a city literally made to prosper. And even now in 2020, they're still getting back on their feet. And the mill girls might not have been celebrating their wins right away. We know Lowell was never exactly a dream vacation spot, but compared to the rest of the 19th century colonized world, there were some pros while they were there. Lowell was a rare place where they had the ability to take control in providing for themselves and their families, where women could define where their place was. People there were used to seeing working and independent women, living on their own and making a life for themselves, and that industrious spirit rubbed off on the rest of the state. In fact, the Lowell Offering, which began in 1840, was a journal written by the Mill Girls. That was simply unheard of for the time. And it wasn't just the mill girls reading it either. They had legislators, mill owners, and hundreds more subscribers. These girls were able to gain influence and prosperity entirely separate from the men in their communities. Lowell had such an impression of the women's rights movement that the annual women's suffrage convention was held there in 1910. That's two major movements towards equity that the mill girls influenced. But one of the negative things that we also see when we look back at this time period is something that's still true of predominantly white feminist movements today. These women also used the status of others to elevate themselves. One of their early chants is that they refused to be treated as enslaved people were. So part of what they were doing was saying that they deserved a better treatment because of their whiteness. Lowell's story isn't just some outdated piece of history. Think about it. 
There's a thriving industry depending on underpaid, overworked immigrants. The guys at the top are making bank, selling products that people need. But beneath it all, the whole system depends on exploitation, and the machine just might fall apart if anything shifts. Sounds familiar, right? You might have a few scenarios in mind, but let's focus on just one example, the migrant farm workers of California. California has a $50 billion agricultural industry depending on these farm workers. 90% of these workers are Latino, and 60% of them aren't legally authorized to work in the U.S. They work long, grueling hours daily, picking and processing produce for maybe $12 an hour. And along with this intense physical labor, exposure to the sun and pesticides have also caused health issues for them. The COVID-19 pandemic has only exacerbated the difficulties these workers face. The virus is ripping through their communities, spreading from the workplace to families at home. Stopping isn't an option, as many workers are already depending on these jobs to make ends meet. And if they aren't legally authorized to work, they can't collect unemployment benefits or COVID relief checks. This harmful cycle is what gets us our food, and the economy is already shaky in the face of this pandemic. Millions of other American families are struggling too, and hiking up the price of fresh and healthy food may only worsen existing health and wealth inequality. Lowell has never recovered from the collapse of the mill industry. Today, 20% of households live below the poverty line, and the median income is $22,000 less than the Massachusetts average. As Matthew Lavallee wrote in his paper, Immigration in Lowell, New Waves of Nativism, it is a story as old as capitalism. The movement of capital often leaves misery in its wake. The fall of the mill system in Lowell toppled the city's economy. While the system led to increased rights for workers, women, and children, it had detrimental effects on the communities that still live in the city today. Unfortunately, every policy has winners and losers. So if we're going to address the issues present in many sectors of the American economy today, we must do it delicately. And with the heart towards empowering the workers, the change in economy could so easily leave behind. Our supporters allow us to create content even during a pandemic, so we'd like to thank Graham Brinson, Craig Kafura, Derek Perkins, Tom Hertwick, John Gilbert, Lena Shravastava, Jennifer Bonder, Nicholas Crouchy, Haley Newton, Emma Barrasso, Nusha Uden, Jean Yoon, Andrew Lieber, Judd Greenstein, Julie Lugton, and Yu Ming Lu. At the beginning of this episode, we asked how such a profitable community could fall so quickly. It's not an easy question to answer, but I think that it was a combination of factors. The movement of fabric production away from the industrial American North, the fall of prices for fabric, and maybe most importantly, the hubris of mill owners who would do anything for profit. There's constant boom and bust cycles, which is always true of industrial capitalism. So there were really difficult times, even when it was quote unquote, a thriving city, you know, thriving for whom even back then. From about 1920 to the present, there has been that long process of what some people call de-industrialization. Part of it is a disinvestment 
of corporate, some corporations in the city, a relocation of corporate investments. Okay, so what has survived from that era? How does this legacy live on? It's also still about a fifth of people in that metro area working in manufacturing. So there is still this legacy and, you know, one of the UMass institutions, UMass Lowell, would not be there if it were not for the textile industry. It has a direct legacy from a textile institute and a teacher's college designed to teach the children who didn't have to work in factories. So I think it kind of seeps into everything. And you don't have to be the child or a grandchild of a factory worker to feel it necessarily. After this conversation, I feel like it's even more clear how this story really isn't that unique. Maybe it was at the start, but now, almost 200 years later, we're still talking about the same issues and going through the same motions. It's clear that the Lowell Mill girls fought incredibly hard for workers' rights, and in that, they made the textile industry significantly less profitable, eventually leading to the demise of this whole system. Let's list off some pros and cons of the Lowell Mills. So for pros, we get feminism. Women finally get the chance to advocate for themselves within the system, financially, politically, and intellectually. It's good news for sure, but then are cons. Lowell itself couldn't survive, but what did survive was a system of labor that, although it's been sustained for the past 200 years, doesn't always have the community's best interest at heart. It's always gonna prioritize profit over people. I think one of the biggest legacies that the mill girls have given us unintentionally is they were never meant to be long-term workers. They were meant to be short-term wage employees who would come and leave and expect very little long-term from the people who hired them. Annalise Orlick has a book called We're All Fast Food Workers Now. This is actually very similar. The way that they were treated has become normalized. So the way that they were expected to be short-term, the way that their skills were called unskilled. You can think of people who drive for a living and are called unskilled. It's a skill. You have to get tested for it. Same thing with the mill girls. They operated very intense, heavy machinery, but they were called unskilled and paid less. So I think these are elements that still linger today. And you can ask yourself, is the world better off or not for that model being put out in the 1820s? There's still a lot missing in our current system and in the way that we view labor. The fact that it hasn't changed after all this time is pretty disappointing. But that brings us back to the question, is there anything we can do now to help oppressed workers? Organizing works, that's something that Lowell did prove in a way. It's hard to imagine these structures changing without an element of discomfort too. Despite the immediate consequences of the movement, the Mill Girls ushered in a new era of advocacy and activism. They proved that systems were carried by the people, and if they weren't happy, it can all crumble, no matter how big it is. What we have now isn't sustainable. There's no cookie-cutter answer on how to make the world a better place, or how we can escape the cycle. But going forward, we can all be a bit more aware of what's going on around us, of whose voices are being silenced or amplified, and of the tangible ways we can help our neighbors. 
This episode of Final Examination was hosted by Varshita Jakaraju and Olivia Omada Hansen. It was researched and written by Julia Carino and Eva Chow. Solomon Bennett worked as the audio engineer and editor. It was produced by Simran Shah. This podcast was created by students at the University of Massachusetts Amherst as part of Political Science 390, a course on the politics of the end of the world led by Assistant Professor Paul Musgrave. It is licensed under a Creative Commons No Derivatives 4.0 international license.